drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hello, I'm Georgie Gardner and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats, thousands of local restaurants available in under 30 minutes. Download the app today. Each week, I speak to accomplished and interesting women about their enviable careers, as well as how they manage to make time and space for themselves. From work and life advice to travel and wellness tips, I find out what engages them and, where possible, pass on their shortcuts. I'm really looking forward to interviewing my guest today, who has created a hugely successful podcast that basically revolves around her calling her girlfriend, who lives on the other side of the country. They're both in the US, but they live on opposite sides. And it got me thinking about the importance of friendship and specifically long distance friendships. Now, I grew up in WA. I now live in New South Wales. So many of my friendships are long distance and they're very much reliant on both of us picking up the phone and taking the time, making the time to catch up. I've got a very good friend who in fact lives in Adelaide, and we speak regularly at great length, often about absolutely nothing and often about everything. She is guaranteed to make me laugh. She is also ridiculously wise. I really value the bond that we have, and I love getting her take on things because I actually don't know anyone more authentic or mad. Her name is Amanda Blair. And I've suddenly just got this crazy thought, why don't I call her now? Hi, sorry. Have you been screening me out? No, the bloody kids have, you know, turned my phone onto silent, of course. (laughs) And then everyone rings me and says, you know, are you dead? And I get text messages and I'm like, fucking kids. I was starting to worry. Why are they doing that to you? Because they do this to me all the time because they were put on this earth to just annoy the crap out of me. That's what they do. That's their job in life. You know I'm doing this podcast series at the moment. I think I've Mm. told you about it. Mm. And I'm talking to a woman by the name of Aminatu So. She has a very wildly successful podcast that's been going for a few years called Call Your Girlfriend. And the concept is that she speaks to her friend on the other side of the US and they you know, they chat about a whole host of different things. I hate Donald Trump. Well, there'd be a little bit of that, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm. And it got me thinking about our friendship because just by virtue of you being in Adelaide and me being in Sydney, we talk a lot over the phone, don't we? We do. I do like a chat over the phone. Mm. I think it's quite good. All right, my friend. Well, um, I guess I just wanted to touch base, but also, you know, as I do, tell you I love you and thank you for being such a outstanding friend. I'm here and very much the richer for having my friendship with you. Well, thank you very much. You've taught me many, many, many things. Have I? Yeah, you have actually. 
a lot about hair products because <laughs> I do I do have a bit of hair in me. The I'll superficial stuff. I've never admitted that to you before, but I do think you've got quite extraordinary locks. <laughs> and quite, is that it? Quite a lock. <laughs> oh, well, no. <laughs> I'll write you a note. All right. I can't think that fast on my feet. You no. know that. Well, it's early. And you haven't had <laughs> exactly. your gin. Have an average All right, lovely. Well, lots of All love right. to everyone and Thank I will you. I'll chat to you soon. All right. Bye, honey. Bye. My guest today is a businesswoman, podcaster, author, and speaker. She's also become somewhat of an expert on friendship, and she refers to her friends as her chosen family. Aminati So, welcome to Drive. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You are by definition, a global citizen. You grew up between Nigeria, Belgium and France, and you landed in the United States aged 19 to attend the University of Texas. That led to you co-founding Tech Lady Mafia with the intention to increase the visibility of women in technology. Why? What drew you to a career in tech? I happened into a career in tech very much on accident. I Graduated um, University of Texas during the recession, <laughs> the last recession that we had here. We are obviously in a new moment of recession. So my heart goes out to all the new uh, college graduates in this moment. It was really a moment of figuring out what you were going to do in your life. Now that the script that your parents had kind of told you was thrown out my entire life. My parents said, if you worked hard, you would get a job and life would magically open all these doors. And I think that a lot of young people and a lot of people in my generation know that that is not true for us at least. And so for me, that happened like very accidentally. I thought I was going to work in politics and work in policy and social media was taking off at the same time. And I started working in that and my eyes really got open to coding and to really looking at tech as a tool for changing the way that I work. And the way that the Tech Lady Mafia happened is that I was friends with so many women in Washington, D.C. who also worked in tech. And every day we would get bombarded by articles about how, you know, there are so few women and minorities in technology, which is very true. It's like the numbers are appalling. But in my life, that was not true. And so my co-founder, Ari Meyer, and I really decided, you know, what does it look like if instead of coming at this problem from a place of lack, we pooled all of our resources together and as anyone who has been in this kind of position will tell you, it's always more powerful when you pull your resources together than when you look at what you do not have. And you've worked at Google, which is often viewed as an enviable place to work. What was that experience like? It was very nice. I don't think I will ever have a nicer lunch at work than I ever had when I worked at Google. I, you know, like the work was really rewarding. My coworkers were all very smart. But I think that for me, it, w- it was a really also eye-opening moment in the sense that I don't thrive working under very rigid institutions. That's the thing that everyone needs to know for themselves. And so while I really enjoyed the work that I did and I enjoyed my coworkers, Google had a real problem with diversity and it was not exciting to go to work at this amazing company doing amazing things and nobody looked like me. And so for me, that was a really short career stint, you know, I think in the grand scheme. But I learned a lot and I made some connections that will last forever. Have they improved on the diversity front, do you believe? I believe not. (laughs) I think I follow very closely in Silicon Valley every year when they release their diversity numbers. And I think that for engineers, it is 
you know, it's very embarrassing to track a number every year and to see year over year that nothing is really changing on a systemic level. Mm. And so I think that you can honestly draw a direct line between the problems that you see in all these institutions when it comes to race and all sorts of diversity and what you're seeing in the streets today. Like, it's not an accident. Institutional racism is very powerful. It is designed to work exactly like this, and it's thriving. I've got to ask you then, is politics still of interest in terms of a career? I am not interested in running for an office. So that kind of politics is not interesting to me. But I think that if you look closely at my work, everything that I do is politics because the personal is political. And do you feel therefore that you have greater power and influence coming at it from that way as opposed to running for office? I think so. If you think about politics as a system that everybody has a role in, it's important to know that everyone has a lane that they can be in. And for me, I think that I am the most effective when I organize to shed light on systems and to shed light on power and how it works and also to pull my resources with other people who are under-resourced and teach us how to fight in a different way. I want to talk to you about Call Your Girlfriend, the podcast you launched with journalist and friend Anne Friedman in 2014. And for those who aren't familiar with it, the idea is you call each other every week and talk about pop culture and politics, essentially, and anything else that's on your mind. Why were you confident that Anne was the right person to team up with? (laughs) What a great question. I mean, Anne is one of my dearest friends in the world. She has been a longtime collaborator of mine. We have worked on smaller things. We write together. We have, you know, run smaller web properties together. And so it was just really natural that in our curiosity and storytelling that we landed in doing an audio project together. I will tell you that the ambition of the podcast when we started it was not to make a popular podcast. I think that if we had done that, we would have failed miserably. It was really about um, our friend Gina Delvac, who is our producer, presented an opportunity to us to work on an audio project together. And we are women who are curious and we are women who love to storytell. And the first couple of months was really just figuring out, is this a thing that we can do? And is this a thing that can work? And I think that if you look at the greater project of what the podcast is, it is in fact political because it's about elevating conversations that young women have and understanding that they are just as valid as any conversation that is happening in culture. And in terms of working with friends, how do you go about that? Do you set down some ground rules to begin with? I mean, has there been creative tension? How's that all played out? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mostly work with my friends and I will tell you that it's the only way that I'm happy. I have done the not working with friends and that's where I was my unhappiest. (laughs) Gina Delvac, who is the producer for Call Your Girlfriend, astutely once said that the reason that she and I and Anne work so well together is because we are all three people that in um, high school, we would do the group project for everyone else and that we found each other. So so it means that we, you know, you finally found your match. I think that some of the working with your friends definitely is kismet. Like there is just a magic to it. But I think that a lot of it is what you were saying. It is like setting ground rules and it is setting expectations and it's being really good communicators and it's being over communicators. And, you know, I would say that with the three of us in our podcast, We don't always agree. Um, We generally have the same viewpoint on a lot of things. We have the same aesthetic point um, and similarities, but 
we do not always agree whether it's about an advertiser or it's about a story that we want to tell, but we have found ways to communicate around it. And so I think that with any good relationship, whether it's a friendship or a business partnership or a marriage or having children, you have to learn how to talk to people and you have to learn how to state your desires and also take into account someone else's desires and figure out what it means for what you're trying to build together. So in other words, it's got to be collaborative. I mean, would that be your main piece of advice for friends who want to go into business together? Yeah. I mean, I would say if you are someone who is really wedded to um, only having your vision executed, do not work with other people because the minute that you work with someone else in any kind of capacity, even if you are a boss, the vision doesn't belong to you anymore. That is really the thing that enough people do not discuss is that in a collaboration, you are melding the minds and the ideas of multiple people and it will never look exactly like something that you own yourself. And that's okay. But I think that being really honest from the onset about what it is that you are trying to figure out and how it is that you're trying to work is great. But I am a big fan of collaboration. It has been only beneficial to me. And that brings me to my next question about shine theory. Explain to our listeners who aren't familiar with shine theory, what that's all about. Shine theory is the operating principle of my relationship with Anne and really the operating principle in all of my friendships. It comes from this idea of I don't shine if you don't shine, which is really telling your friends that you are as invested in them as they are invested in you and that their successes are your successes and their failures are your failures. I think it's a countercultural message in an age where we say that, you know, especially women are always fighting with each other, something that I don't believe is true, but persists as a cultural meme. It's something that is really important to bring to the foreground because in my life, at least, I'm not saying that every woman in the world is my friend or that I agree with them. Actually, quite the opposite is true, but that it is really important when you are building a community to be intentional about what it is that you want to do. And I think that providing support for each other in this way is both countercultural and really revolutionary. I absolutely love that whole idea of if someone else is shining, you'll shine as well. And yet I feel that gets lost. It gets perhaps watered down. How do we keep encouraging and understanding that it's good for other people to have their moment? I mean, I think that we just have to do just that is to keep reminding people. I think that for women, especially, there is just this concept. And I think that most marginalized people understand this. But there is this concept that there is only a tiny piece of the pie for you, right? It's like if you work in an office, for example, everyone there is probably a man and there are only four women who are allowed to be in leadership positions. So those four women are who you are competing against. And so I think that this is why it's important to recognize the system. If the system is telling you that there's only a small part of it for you, you are already in direct competition with people that look like you, which is not fair. Mm. I think that if you are a person with ambitions, you should recognize that the whole pie is available to you. And I think that if you really push people a little bit, I think that no one would dispute this. Someone else having a moment does not mean that you cannot have a moment. I can't point to a single time in my life where that was true. It's not to say that you don't get envious of people or that you don't want what they have. Like all of those are very normal 
human emotions. I think that it is what you do with that and that you are really falling prey to (laughs) systemic sexism Mm -hmm. when you think that another woman having an accomplishment is diminishing to you. Because I was like, that's literally what the system is teaching you. And it's not true. There is room for literally all of us. And Again, I have found in my own life that, you know, in those moments of when someone has something that you want, if instead of just letting the green monster of jealousy fester, if instead you just said, how do I get that? Or how do I talk about this in a more constructive way? It's a more powerful way to live. Mm. And most people are generous. It is just true that most people are generous. I would not be where I was in my career if not for the generosity of other women and other black people and other people of color. And it's something that I want to keep passing on. Mm. And it becomes contagious. There's no doubt about it. You've spoken openly about Call Your Girlfriend's revenue streams as well as your own financial situation, which I reckon is just so refreshing because money is a topic people are often tight-lipped about and I think probably more so among women. What's your attitude when it comes to money? I think my father would tell you that I'm very rude when it comes to money because I love to talk about it. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I was like that kind of politeness really serves nobody. And I think that, you know, I keep talking about the systems that we're shining a light on. I think that being shy about your salary, being shy about talking about money is really another way to oppress people. And it, it works very well. I personally believe that money has a very neutral value and that you can do good things with it and you can do bad things with it. Humans do good and bad, but money itself is, to me, it is just a data point. And I think that if you look at one of the ways that like women do not get ahead at work, the gender pay gap, for example, one easy way in identifying and fixing the gender pay gap is just being honest about what amount of money other people are making. And if this is information that we do not discuss, then of course some people will be underpaid. And so for me, it really is about identifying all of these areas that we can stand to just be more honest about. When I talk about my salary or I talk about the revenue stream for our podcast, it's not to brag. It is literally to give someone else who is coming up in this industry a benchmark for what they can expect as well. And it is an incredibly generous thing to do when other people share their salary information. It's in the United States, we've had cases that have been fought in the Supreme Court over this. And so all we can truly give each other in life is information and money is just part of that. So is the onus therefore on the employer or the employee to be more open and transparent in talking about this, do you think? I mean, in my ideal world, employers would be transparent about it. I don't see why we don't live in a world where anytime you apply for a job, for example, there's not a salary band. Why is that something that needs to be a state secret? I don't understand. You can tell people what the ceiling and the floor is of what they should expect to get. Because again, If you look at the way that just people are raised and the way that we talk about, a lot of people just do not have financial literacy. How are you supposed to know that you're supposed to make three times as much or, you know, whatever figure you're supposed to make if that's not something that throughout your education or throughout your family life had been reinforced to you? This question of how much value does my labor have is not something that most people intrinsically know. Mm. And I find that the wealthier people are or the more access they have had to power, the more they have been privy to this information and it's not difficult for them. Also, when you look at 
in the United States, at least, there are a lot of studies about how it generally backfires when women start negotiating for salaries because you are perceived as combative and you are perceived as, uh, you know, like not nice words that I cannot say on your show. Mm. And again, for me, I was like, well, like this is one way to cut out that bias is just tell people how much you would pay anyone for this job. Why is it that some people just make more money than others? And why does it always fall along gender, race and sexuality lines? I don't quite have the answer to that, but I think that we have really easy solutions for that. I know I had a really interesting conversation with a male boss once who suggested to me that whenever young females broach the topic of their salary, they would often start the conversation with the word sorry. You know, sorry to disturb you or sorry if um, Mm -hmm. I've caught... And it was interesting because he said, I wish they wouldn't do that. They're quite entitled to come in and discuss their salary and to have that negotiation and that conversation with me. We as women probably need to get better at that, don't we? I mean, I think that that's really complicated because like I'm telling you, a lot of studies, at least in the United States, show that that is not true, that you might be entitled to it, but that when you ask, you are perceived as pushy and you are perceived as nagging. So while I appreciate that male boss of yours was very encouraging, that is not true across the border. A lot of these studies also show that this is different across racial lines. In the United States, for example, Black women are uh, generally more ambitious than white women, and um, we just lack more opportunities. And so I think that, you know, the way that we're socialized has so much to do with this. But again, there are very easy solutions for cutting out all of this noise. What if instead of people having to beg for their worth, we just told them up front and then it was not a point of discussion? Mm. Well, it would eradicate a lot of that, wouldn't it? Right. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be right back after this message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the perfect companion for Aussies on the go. They're for you at home, at work or on holidays. Uber Eats has more than 20,000 restaurants offering fresh and delicious meals at the click of a button. Thanks to Uber Rewards, more than a million Australians are already earning loyalty points on every order on Uber Eats. Download Uber Eats from the App Store and celebrate local restaurants today or explore the new grocery option to get your essentials without visiting the supermarket. Uber Eats, connecting what matters. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit most budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest is Aminatu So. You've been quoted saying, I've been ambitious my whole life, which I absolutely love. Why do you think women are made to feel hesitant about admitting to ambition? I know I've heard men say in a very derogatory way, oh, she's so assertive. I mean, whoever says, oh, he's so assertive. Because I think that it's very antithetical to this idea of what it means to be feminine. To be a beautiful woman, you are supposed to be thin, you are supposed to be very feminine, you are supposed to be meek. It's a box that is frankly very impossible. I've never been interested in fitting in that box. 
And I personally find it very refreshing when I meet other women who are ambitious and are not afraid to say it. It's not a dirty word. You know, you're right. It's like when we say that a man is assertive, you know, there's a leadership quality to it that everyone is supposed to to just like fall in love over. And I was like, well, I'm like, good for him. I am also I would I would love to be assertive. (laughs) I'm I love to be successful. I love to work hard. These are values that were inculcated by me by my parents, but also it is really important to present a full spectrum of humanity for women. And I think that for some of us, we derive a lot of pleasure and a lot of worth from how hard we work. And that's not to say that you are a lesser woman if those are things that don't interest you. I was like, you know, good for you. Like, let me know how I can support that journey for you. But I think that for myself, I have just found that it's important to say that. And it's really important to be a model for the next generation. Mm. How did your parents influence you in that way. Tell us a little bit more about growing up and and what it was that made you so proud to be ambitious and hardworking. You know, my parents were in some ways like very typical West African immigrants. My family is Muslim, very conservative. And in other ways, my parents also made remarkable choices for us that I cannot quite explain them, but maybe but they can. (laughs) They can somehow. And I think that one thing for me that was hugely helpful in my family is that even though my family was this very conservative Muslim family, my father always took me very seriously as a child. I was the firstborn in, we are from Guinea, and our tribe is Fulani. And usually, you know, like the firstborn boys are taken very seriously. And, you know, like if you're a girl, your job is to get married as soon as possible. And for whatever reason, my father did not do that. He was like, you are my firstborn child and I will treat you the same. I was treat another boy. And I saw the difference. I was not raised like the other women in my family are. And I think that that had huge repercussions for me. I also think that my parents generally were very education minded and They really encouraged me to be a curious person and they really celebrated my academic accomplishments. And that was something that was also hugely instrumental for me. They allowed me to be the curious child that I wanted to be. I was a huge reader and that was something that my parents encouraged. And they never made me feel less than for being a young woman who like was bookish. And I think that that made all of the difference. How wonderful. They say a father gives his daughter self-esteem and it sounds like your father did that in a huge way. Yeah. I mean, again, you see it all the time. And sorry, I keep referencing studies. I've just been reading so much uh, Harvard Business Review lately. (laughs) But it is, again, true. It's like men, if you look at a lot of American companies, male CEOs with children that are women are particularly more fair than men who are not. That's not great because men should not have daughters in order to, you know, to want to see them treated fairly in the world. But that is the world that we live in, unfortunately. It's why men will marry um, Melania's and have daughters who are Ivanka's like and because they would love to see their legacy perpetrated. And so it is a double edged sword that is really painful, but it does make a huge difference. You and Anne have recently written the book Big Friendship Together. Tell us about the book and what the experience has been like writing it. Wow. (laughs) Another big question. Yeah. Anne and I wrote this book together over the course of the last two years. It is definitely the most like ambitious collaboration yet for both of us. And it really came out of a lot of conversations that we've been having about friendship. Like we are two people for who friendship is a main course and not a dessert at the, at the end of a life well lived. (laughs) I love that analogy. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And, you know, we are people for whom 
a lot of our friends are our chosen family. And so really thinking in an analytical way about the place of friendship and the place of platonic bonds in a society that really prioritizes romantic bonds was something that we were interested in exploring. And so the book itself is a memoir of our friendship. We are two women. And so the main thrust of the book is this friendship between the two of us. But there's a lot of um, interviews with experts and a lot of pop psychology and studies about friendship because it is a really understudied area of life, even though I think that we all agree that friendship is central to so many people's lives. And so I think that if we did a good job, the book is less about us and um, because we don't believe that our bond is special over anybody else's bond. In fact, it is very typical of the relationships that people who have good friends say they have in a world where um, friendship is not prioritized. There is no like government paperwork to signal that someone is your person if you are not married to them or you haven't given birth to them. And we want to live in a world that recognizes friendship for what it is, a really life-affirming and changing bond. I've not thought about that before, but you're so right. There is so little written about friendship. And I'm wondering through the process what you've discovered about friendship that you didn't already know. I mean, so much. I think that the thing that was the most affirming to me is really understanding that Every joy that I have in my friendship with Anne is a joy that other people have in their friendships. And every pitfall that we have in our friendship is also something that is very recognizable across the board. And there was something also just very affirming and knowing that, you know, this has been going on for generations. People have had very good friends and have had to figure out how to live with friends at the center of their lives and are really trying to answer this question of how do I signal that this is a really important friendship and this is a really important relationship to my well-being. And so just talking to all the experts that we did just really reinforced that for me. I love you describing friendship as chosen family. I think that's beautiful. It's very thought-provoking. You clearly have forged extraordinary friendships. I understand after your cancer diagnosis a few years ago, your friends organised a blood drive for you. What an incredibly kind and useful gesture. I mean, yes, I have a lot of problems in life, but one of them is not that I do not have friends who love me unconditionally. And I've been so transformed by it and so humbled by it. And we write about this in the book, really friendship as almost like a life insurance against everything that life will throw at you. And when I was diagnosed with cancer in my early 30s, I got to see my friends step up for me in a way that I will never forget for as long as I live. And I'm also so glad that I got to see that at a relatively young age because it really just reinforced for me that it was, that these are all really important mutual investments that we are making in other people's lives, you know? And so when I got sick, to see the people who loved me be there in a way that was in a very daily and mundane way, but also a really life-changing and big way was... um, it's something that I will just never forget. Oh, well, that is the definition of unconditional love, isn't it? May I ask how you're going with your health? I am doing good. Health is going really well, so I'm thankful to report that. Oh, that is wonderful to hear. Aminati, you have so many strings to your bow. The podcast, of course, public speaking, you're an author. You also generate money from sponsored posts. How are you feeling when you sit and look at what you've achieved? Are you content with where you're at career-wise? Hmm. I feel very fortunate, I think, when I look at it, because 
so much of it just stems from following my gut and making decisions that at the time felt really indulgent or not wise, like when I left my job at Google. But I think that at the same time, I do feel a sense of peace about knowing that it's important to to trust yourself and to forge a path for yourself. I think that I am by nature just very curious and I feel incredibly lucky that I get to pursue my curiosity every day and I am incredibly lucky that I get paid to be myself and it's not lost on me that those are not opportunities that people who look like me have all the time so I feel a sense of responsibility about it and I also feel a lot of gratitude about it. Would you therefore say that a lot of your decision making along the way has been driven by gut instinct? I think so. I've not really had clear models about what I want to do. I cannot quite answer the question for you of what do you want to be when you get older? My answer to that is always, I just want to make sure that I can pay all my bills. (laughs) The work Mm -hmm. itself is a little less important to me. But I think that every step of the way, I've been rewarded for taking some really low level risks. And I think that it's fair to say that some of it is just truly dumb luck and some of it is really hard work. And I think that that is a fair assessment of most people's success. What is next for you career-wise? Have you got a particular target or goal that you've set that you're working towards? No, I think that what's next for me is a little bit of rest. (laughs) It's a little bit of, yeah, just going back to the drawing board. I've been doing this podcast for six years now. I've written a book with a, a friend that I love. I am doing all the speaking that I like. I think that I, I'm really in a place where creatively I want to go back to the drawing board and figure out what my next challenge is. And it is really a blessing to not feel any kind of pressure about it and to have the space to figure it out. I'm going to ask you a few lighter questions just to finish, if I could. Pre-COVID, I know you travelled a lot. When we can travel again without restrictions, which destination's top of your list? What, what do you plan to do once this lockdown finishes? Oh, my God. Remember passports? <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think, I think I would like to go back to Japan. That is one of the first places I'd like to go to. I would like to go back to Japan. I want to go to Paris. Also, I'd love to go to West Africa to see my dad. So I have a feeling that when lockdown is over, I'm probably going to be on a couple of planes just going to a couple places. Well, we hope to get you here back to Australia as well. And I'm wondering if you were recommending Australia to a friend, where would you tell them to stay? Oh my gosh, I love Australia so much. That has been um, a really unexpected love story for me with a new country. Why is that? I think it's a couple of things. I've been really blessed to know some amazing Australian folks. And so obviously the people make the place. I think also too that some of it has been... Because we lived in Nigeria, obviously Australia is also a Commonwealth country. There have always been a couple of things I was aware of, but never fully understood. And I think that seeing it for myself was amazing. I love going somewhere that I do not know at all and finding just, you know, its own kind of magic. So no offense to Melbourne. I am a big Sydney fan. (laughs) Um, The weather is not amazing, but I would say, you know, like Melbourne will make you very happy. Go eat at Cumulus, my favorite restaurant (laughs) in town. But I have recommended Sydney to so many friends because... It's amazing. It is truly amazing, amazing. But I think that you could go anywhere in Australia and have your mind blown. So 
if you can afford to, definitely make a trip. Have you been to Outback Australia? Have you been to anywhere outside of the major cities? I have, and it was really amazing. As an African person, there is something like very magical about going to someone else's bush and being like, oh, this is how they do things over here. (laughs) So I was truly charmed by all of it. That's interesting because I've had the privilege of going to parts of Africa and I found it equally spiritual and beautiful as I do Outback Australia. What have you read recently that's blown you away? Have you got any recommendations on the book front, Aminatu? Oh my God. Um, All I am doing is reading during the lockdown as well. And so a couple of things. I have been rereading all of the Toni Morrison body of work because Ah, she left us last year. Yes. And I realized that she was the greatest writer alive when she was. And it's been really, really, really lovely to go back and read all of her books and really take that in. And it's so important, especially right now in this moment. I was also in Australia in November, October, and I bought every single Helen Garner book because I heard her speak and she's amazing. Helen Garner is amazing. I love her so much. And I've been reading her journals recently, and they're amazing. She has such a way of explaining even the simplest thing and just tugging at you. So her sentences are beautiful. Her intellect is just amazing. And she just really sees people for who they are. And so I've been thinking a lot about in this moment of lockdown, like what it means to be a citizen of the world. And I think that literary citizenship is incredibly important. So I would encourage everyone to pick any country on the map and find a writer from there and read about it and just let yourself be transformed. We can't leave our homes, but books can really do that for you. Well, thank you for flying the flag for Helen Garner because I'm with you. I think she's an exquisite writer. The First Stone was a book that just had such an impact on me many years ago and you've motivated me. I'm going to go and read Monkey Grip because that's a book I've always wanted to read and haven't. So more Helen Garner is a great recommendation. Um What about podcasts? I mean, what do you listen to and what should we all be listening to at the moment, (laughs) apart from Call Your Girlfriend? (laughs) Oh, my God. Here's my dirty podcaster secret. I don't really listen to podcasts. Uh, (laughs) Please don't tell tell anyone. Busted, finally. I mean, it's not true. I have a couple of podcasts that have always been in my rotation. If you are looking for something that is really fun and you are someone who loves pop culture I cannot recommend enough Who Weekly it's a podcast that's made by my friends Lindsay and Bobby and it really you know on one hand it seems like this really superficial kind of podcast about um, what they call who celebrities celebrities that you're not quite sure why they're famous but it really is a show that is about media studies and they do so much to explain to you why the gossip industry works like it does. And I think that gossip is a really important vector to understand culture. So I love Who Weekly. I love the New York Times podcast, Still Processing, I think has just really smart and excellent conversations. And um, yeah, I would recommend those two. Thank you for that. And just finally, Aminatu So, when are you at your happiest? Ah, that's such a good question. These days, I am at my happiest when everyone in my quarantine pod is sitting around for dinner and the kids like tell us about their days because as someone who is child free, 
I am really discovering the gift of having small people in your life. They are lively and they are fun and they see the world in a way that I want to see the world as well. And so that's when I'm at my happiest these days. That is absolutely beautiful and a wonderful image to leave us with. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day and I hope everyone that you love is safe and sound. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats and is produced by Fancy Films. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode and we would love it if you could rate and review because that really helps people to find us. I'll be back again next week. Bye for now.